Shabbat Shalom. Well, again, welcome everybody and welcome everyone watching online. And I want to encourage all the children who are here or who are watching online to uh, either draw pictures or take notes. And today we're going to look at um, two different people uh, who Yeshua ministers to. So I want you children to be writing down which two people these are and what way Yeshua ministered to them. What was their, their special uh, deliverance that the Yeshua gave them and what these two different people had in common. So think, be looking and thinking of those things as we go through the message t- uh, today. So uh, we're in a series on, on, on the book of Mark. Today's part 12. Today we're going to look at uh, the woman with the issue of blood uh, and the raising of, of Jairus' daughter uh, from the dead. So look at Mark chapter 5, verse 21 to 43. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. When Yeshua had again crossed over by boat to, to the other side of the lake... A large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Yeshua, he fell at his feet. And he pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter's dying. Please come and put your hands on her so she'll be healed and live. So Yeshua went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal at the care, uh, under the care of many doctors, and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Yeshua, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Yeshua realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched me? Who touched my clothes? Oh, you see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Yeshua kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Yeshua was speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter's dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Yeshua told him, Fear not, just believe. He didn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Yeshua saw a commotion uh, with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child's not dead, but just asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's uh, father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this uh, and told them to give her something to eat. This is an account of Yeshua's patience. You cannot hurry Yeshua. But his timing is often a severe trial of our patience. So let's look at the three things on the overhead here about this passage. Number one, the delays of Yeshua. Number two, most importantly, the lessons that these delays teach us. 
And number three, the puzzling weakness of Yeshua. So first, the, the delays of Yeshua. Right away, we meet Jairus, a synagogue ruler. This meant he was probably uh, the lay president of the synagogue, therefore a man of great devotion to God and morality and respectability, probably wealthy and, and prominent. But he's desperate because his little girl is as good as dead. And the language he uses here is not, it's not that his, his little girl might die, but that she's about to die. She's going to die unless Yeshua comes and heals her. Yeshua says, yes, uh, he'll come to Jairus' house. So you can imagine the excitement of Jairus, but also how his insides now are churning with anxiety and, and urgency and fear that they would be too late. So Jairus and Yeshua and his disciples, they're rushing to Jairus' home, followed by this huge crowd, uh, because the crowd wants to see another miracle. So this huge crowd is pressing upon Yeshua, and all of a sudden, Yeshua experiences something. Look at Mark 5, verse 30. At once, Yeshua realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? Yeshua realizes that power, the, the word here is dunamis, where we get our word dynamite from, uh, that power had gone out from him. And he experiences a type of weakness. We'll come back to this. Uh, and he knows that someone's been healed. And he stops everything. He stops the entourage. He, he stops the ambulance, <laughs> the, the EMS truck uh, that was going to Jairus' house. All the ambulance sirens stop. Everything suddenly comes to a halt. And Yeshua turns around and says, I need to find out who got that healing. So he stops. Uh, he finds her. Uh, uh, he brings out what happened. He has her tell her whole story. He, and he has his extended conversation with her. Now imagine the nausea of Jairus. Imagine the confusion of the disciples. Anyone who sees this woman who's got this chronic problem, because it's been going on, going on for 12 years now, and then compares it to this little 12-year-old girl who has a very acute problem. She's about to die. They'll be dumbfounded by Yeshua's delay in going to Jairus' house. This woman's chronic problem, despite how difficult, uh, it's, it's, it's been going on for 12 years already. Uh, it's not life-threatening. It can certainly wait two more hours. The little girl, though, has an acute problem. It's urgent. Uh, it's life-threatening. She's about to die. And yet Yeshua chooses to stop and to talk with this woman. He, this makes no sense to us. Uh, this seems absolutely irrational. Uh, if he were an emergency room MD, he'd be guilty of malpractice. Any ER doctor who has a woman come into uh, to the ER with a, with a chronic problem uh, uh, that could wait a few hours and has the little girl coming in with this acute problem who's about to die, if he treats the woman first and lets the little girl die, He'll be sued for major malpractice. And he'll lose his job and he'll lose his license. And that's what it looks like Yeshua is doing. And so Jairus and the disciples, they must be thinking, Yeshua, what are you doing? Don't you understand the situation? Hurry, hurry. Uh, Jairus' daughter is dying. Come quickly. or It'll be too late. Jairus' attitude is, I need help from you now, Yeshua. Not later. Now, please hurry. But Yeshua will not be hurried. And as he's standing around conversing with this woman, the thing that Jairus most fears happens. 
Look at verse 35, Mark 5, 35. While Yeshua was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter's dead, they said. Why bother the teacher, the rabbi, anymore? Imagine how Jairus felt toward Yeshua at that moment. But Yeshua looks at him and says, trust me. Look at verse 36. Ignoring what they said, Yeshua told him, don't be afraid, just believe. Yeshua says, I will not be hurried. It doesn't matter what it looks like, I will not be hurried. On the overhead now. Now the first thing we learn here is that God's blessing and God's grace almost never seem to operate according to our schedule. According to, to our sense of time. You know, every culture, interestingly, has a different sense of time. You see this in spades uh, when you do uh, cross-cultural weddings. You know, one party is from a northern European culture uh, where, you know, five minutes late is a problem. Other party is from an Indian or Latin American or African culture uh, where an hour late is no problem at all. So one side of the aisle is sitting there waiting and waiting. Uh, and the bride and the groom from, from the other side of the aisle, they're not even there yet when the, woman, when the wedding is scheduled to start. <laughs> You see, timing is relative. And everyone has their own sense of time. You know, this is the right time and this is not. And God, but God's sense of timing will always confound ours, no matter what culture you're from. His blessing almost never seems to come when you want it. His grace never operates according to our schedule and our timing. And what Yeshua was doing here, when he looked at Jairus and he says, trust me, at the same time, he's speaking to you, and to you, and to me. And on the overhead, and he's saying to us, as he did uh, in the calming of the storm, in the last chapter of Mark chapter 4, he's saying, my grace and love is compatible with you going through storms, whether you understand it or not at the time. And now in the same way, he, uh, here he says, I'm telling you, my grace and love are compatible with what may seem to you to be an unconscionable, inexplicable delay. It's not, I won't be hurried, uh, but know that I love you anyways. Rather, uh, it, I won't be hurried because I love you. I know what I'm doing. And Yeshua says, if you insist on imposing your subjective, limited view and understanding of your timing on me, you'll never feel loved by me. And it'll be your fault. So number one, we see Yeshua will not be hurried. Uh, and therefore, we often feel, we feel exactly like Jairus. We feel the Lord's delaying irrationally uh, and unconscionably, inordinately, wrongly. That's the first point on the overhead. Second point, we see here all kinds of, of instructions and lessons because of this delay. And it's clear in the text that it's because of the delay that we learn so much about faith and so much about, about many things. When, we, when, when you look back, it's often the delays of God that have taught you lessons that are priceless. Lessons that we would almost give anything to learn. Let me touch on, on just three of the lessons here that we can see. Lessons that we learn from, from this delay. Uh, on the overhead, uh, the first lesson we learn is that you will always both give and get from Yeshua far more than you bargain for when you go to him for something. Whenever you go to Yeshua for something, you'll always both uh, give and get far more than you bargain for. For example, look, look here at Jairus. He came to Yeshua for a fever cure. 
Not for a resurrection, but he's getting a resurrection. He came thinking he was going to have to trust Yeshua just enough to get home before his daughter died. But Yeshua is demanded now far more from him. Because Yeshua turns to him when Jerry's daughter has died from it looks like this unconscionable delay of Yeshua, this malpractice of the great physician. And Yeshua looks right in his eyes and says, trust me. Now this is a test of faith. Uh, this test of faith that's way beyond anything that Jairus thought he was getting into when he first came to Yeshua for his daughter's healing. And now let's look at this woman with the issue of blood. Her story is sandwiched, if you will, between the beginning and the end of the account uh, of, of Jairus because it teaches us something about the account of Jairus. And by the way, Mark loves to do this as a literary technique. Uh, he, in fact, he loves, to do, he loves to do this so much we see it so many times in the book of Mark where he'll start a story and then he'll pause it with another account and then he'll go back to the original story. He does this so much that the biblical scholars have actually called this literary technique a Markian sandwich. <laughs> this woman, she has this unceasing hemorrhage uh, and thus under Jewish law, she's in this perpetual state of, of, of ceremonial uncleanliness. This means according to Leviticus 15, she could not be part of the worshiping community of Israel. She was as unclean as a leper. She was not allowed to touch uh, to uh, any, for anyone. No, nobody else was allowed to touch her or her clothes. She wasn't allowed to touch anyone. This woman was suffering not just this physical misery, uh, but also social and religious misery as well. She's basically banished from corporate worship. She could not enter the temple. Now, what did she want from Yeshua? She basically wanted to touch and run. She basically wanted this miraculous uh, but anonymous healing and then to flee because she knew that she was violating the ritual purity laws to be in this crowd, let alone to touch Yeshua. So she wants to, to touch and run. But Yeshua won't have it. He forces her to go public. Now, this is very threatening. Now, as you mentioned, because she has this blood flow, uh, thus making her, her ritually unclean. And she's probably considered a cursed person as well in that society because of her chronic condition. And so for the ceremonially unclean, perhaps cursed woman, to touch anyone, let alone to touch a man, to, uh, let alone a rabbi, let alone in public, was to break enormous taboos. And therefore, it's very frightening when Yeshua forces her to go public, why does he do this? She needs it. This is far more than she wanted to give, but she's going to get far more than she ever thought she could get. You see, she seems to have almost a quasi-superstitious understanding of Yeshua's power. She thinks the touch healed her. And Yeshua wants to dialogue with her so he can say, no, it's your faith that healed you. And that's all the difference in the world between being a semi-superstitious person who, who got a bodily healing and a life-transformed disciple of Yeshua for all eternity. Yeshua, he's ultimately saying, don't come to me just to have your needs met. Now, that doesn't mean that I won't meet your needs, uh, but come to me for a life-transforming relationship with me. That's what you should be coming for. This is far more than, than she expected to get. It's also far more than she expected to give. 
So here's the point. If you go to Yeshua for anything, and I hope you do, I will guarantee you that he'll, uh, he'll, he'll get from you far more than you originally planned to give. But he'll give to you infinitely more than you ever dared to ask or think. And infinitely more than you give to him. Dealing with Yeshua is always a great deal for you. Not always for him. You know, he paid the infinite cost for your healing and deliverance. So that's the first lesson. If you go to Yeshua for anything, you'll always both get and give far more than you bargained for. Now, as a side note, it's interesting here whether she realized it or not, but what this woman did was actually filled with messianic symbolism uh, and imagery. Uh, she reached out to touch Yeshua's cloak, uh, his outer garment. If you look at the parallel passages in, in Matthew 9 and Luke 8, it expressly says she touched the fringe of his cloak. Uh, and of course, at the bottom of a first century Jewish man's cloak were four corners of the garment to which were tied the fringes, the, the tzitzit. Uh, it's commanded in Numbers 15 uh, for all Jewish males. Uh, the tzitzit were made with eight strings, seven white, one of techelet, which is this light blue color, uh, tied on each of the, the four corners of the garment. Uh, the blue symbolized heaven. The numerical value of the word uh, of tzitzit and the wrappings and the knots of the tzitzit added up to 613. 613 being the number of the commandments of the Torah. Interestingly, in the Aramaic translations we have of the New Testament, such as the Old Syriac and the Peshitta, the text expressly says she reached out and touched his corners or his tzitzit of his garment. Now, Malachi 4, verse 12 on the overhead says this, But for you who fear my name, the Son, S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Now, as you know, there are no vowels in the original Hebrew scriptures. So this word for son, shemesh, could also be read as shamesh, servant. And the word for wings, kanaf, also literally means corners. Because the, a bird's wings are on the corners of its body. Uh, indeed, this very same word, kanaf, is used in Numbers 15, where Jewish men are commanded to put tzitzit on the kanaf, on the corners of their garments. Same word. So this, so... Uh, this verse could also be read to say on the overhead, we could also read this verse to say, but for you who fear my name, the servant of righteousness, the Messiah, will rise with healing in his corners. And what are on the corners of his garment? The tzitzit, the fringes. So this woman reaching out to touch Yeshua's tzitzit, symbolizing heaven, symbolizing the word of God. And of course, Yeshua is the living word. She is healed. Just as it says in Malachi 4.2, for those who fear my name, the Messiah, the servant of righteousness, will rise with healing in his tzitzit. Indeed, a very famous uh, Jewish commentary called the Midrash Exodus Rabbah. It's in verse it's, uh, 3110, if you want the, the reference. It expressly applies this verse in Malachi to the Messiah. So the Jewish commentators saw this verse in Malachi about healing in his wings as being a messianic verse. And by the way, Zechariah 8.23 on the overhead tells us in the last days, ten men from all the nations will take hold of the corners of the garment of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we know that God is with you. Again, again the same word for corner, kanaf, is used here in, in Zechariah 8.23, as in Malachi 4, as in the Aramaic versions of the Gospels. So in the last days, we see the nations, the Gentiles, the goyim, grabbing hold of the tzitzit of a Jew. Of the Jew, Yeshua. 
So we see great messianic typology in the details of this healing. Like I said, if you go to Yeshua, you're always going to get far more than you bargained for. And the overhead. Second, we also see in this delay that Yeshua is a God of grace and that his grace reverses the values of the world. Take a look at these two people. Jairus is a male in a society where men had absolutely all the power. The woman with the issue of blood is a female. Jairus is a synagogue ruler. This woman is ceremonially unclean, not even allowed in a synagogue or the temple. Jairus is wealthy. This woman is poor. She spent all she had, all her money on doctors. So here's a man at the top of the social food chain. Here's a woman at the bottom of the social food chain. And yet Yeshua turns to this woman with zero social or economic capital or power and gives her his full attention and treats her as that there's nothing else in the world, no one else in the world but her. So Yeshua turns to this woman with zero status and power and makes a male civil and religious leader sit out in the waiting room (laughs) in his moment of greatest need. You can wait over there, please. What's going on here? Why did he do this? Well, if you go through the Gospels, over and over and over again, there are these pairs that we see, like a Pharisee and a publican, a religious leader and a fallen woman, an insider and an outsider, a racial, moral, economic, religious outsider and an insider. And whenever that happens, invariably, it's the outsider to whom Yeshua connects. Why? And the overhead, because at the end of the book of Mark, we're going to know that through the cross, the way up is down. The way to get power is to give away power and to become a servant. The way to be clothed in absolute, the absolute eternal righteousness of God is to admit you have none. The way to have a great life is to be willing to give up your life and to die. The way to have a fulfilled life uh, is to seek the happiness and the fulfillment of others. The way, to know who, the way to know who you are is to stop trying to figure out who you are and to lose yourself in service to God and to your neighbor. And this upside-down kingdom of God reverses the world's values. Yeshua does not come to people on the basis of their pedigree or their status. In fact, Yeshua is typically more attracted to people who are the most messed up and who have messed up the most. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. I don't care if you used to be on hell's paid staff. I don't care how far you've fallen. In fact, Yeshua is attracted to people who are the most, most messed up and who have messed up the most. All that matters is you repent, meaning you turn from your sin and you turn from yourself and you turn to Yeshua. Indeed, as you read this in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God's chosen the lowly and despised things, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no one would boast in his presence. So secondly, we see here that the Yeshua's delay teaches us that God's grace is real grace. Yeshua is the God of real grace. And that reverses the values of this world. 
Uh, that reverses the world's values about beauty uh, and power and status and importance and meaning. On the overhead, now third, third lesson. The third, these delays teach us that if God seems to be unconscionably delaying his grace, it's because there is some massively crucial factor that you don't know. There's a massively crucial factor that's not available to you. If God looks like he's really doing malpractice in your life, it's because there's some massively crucial factors that are unavailable to you. As far as Jairus and the disciples are concerned, what Yeshua was doing is malpractice. It just seems ridiculous to let this little girl die in order to deal with this woman who could have easily waited. But we know something that Jairus and the disciples did not know at the time. We know some crucial facts. First, we know that for Yeshua, curing this girl's fever or raising her from the dead is no different for him. No no difference at all. For Yeshua, there's no more problem to raise her from the dead than to cure her fever. No problem at all. Uh, but we do know that, that there is an opportunity here to take this quasi-superstitious woman who's received a bodily healing and turn her into a life-transformed disciple for all eternity. And that opportunity has to, has to be capitalized on right now. You and I can see that, uh, but they can't see that. Uh, they have no idea. Now, in a similar way, let me ask you, is the Lord today delaying something in your life? I, are you just ready to give up? Uh, are, are you mad at him? And the overhead. If so, Yeshua is looking at you and saying, Jairus, <laughs> you Jairus is out there. There's some massively crucial factors that you just don't have available to you. This is a test for you to trust me. Indeed, when I look at the delays of God in my own life, I can look back and I can realize most of my consternation has been because of my own arrogance to think subconsciously, yes, Lord, of course, you're the creator of the universe, but why would you know any better than me what's best for me, (laughs) how my life should be going? You see, there's self-righteousness there that we all have, whether we see it or not. Uh, There's a subconscious arrogance there. Why do I think that I know all the facts? Uh, How could I possibly know all the facts? I cannot know all the facts. On the overhead, uh, Elizabeth Lash, this philosopher professor at Syracuse University, she writes this. In our modern culture, we're taught that everything that's not us is there to be manipulated by us. For our own ends. That's the innate pride that's in your heart and mine. And in our modern, our modern me-centered culture, it exacerbates this even more. Uh, makes it even worse. Uh, and so the default mode of our heart is to think, why isn't everything going exactly as I planned? And the answer is, you're not God. And therefore, the self-righteousness and self-centeredness that needs to be knocked out of our hearts, it's often knocked out of our hearts by these delays. By these delays. So Yeshua says to you, if it looks like I'm doing something or failing to do something that makes no sense to you, just know, I have some facts that you don't have. I have a perspective that you don't have. Now, Yeshua offers us some help here. Uh, Not an answer for his delays exactly, uh, but a great deal of help to help you face the things that that you're facing in your life. So on the overhead, and that help is point number three. It's to see the weakness of Yeshua. 
Look at Mark 5, verse 30. Tells us after this woman touches his cloak, at once Yeshua realizes that power has gone out from him. Now, by the way, this is unique in the Gospels. In all the accounts of Yeshua's life, there's no other place where we see that for, on the overhead that for her to get strong, he has to get weak. Throughout the Gospels, we see Yeshua dealing with far bigger problems than this, and he always has more than enough power for them, calming the hurricane. Casting out a whole army, a whole legion of demons, cleansing a leper, forgiving sins, raising the dead. No problem. Now, if Yeshua can easily handle all of that, why in the world would it tax his strength to heal this woman? Well, this weakness obviously did not have to happen. Rabbi, I think it's a sign of something. A sign of what? Well, let's go to the very end of the story. Uh, the plot has now thickened excruciatingly. Uh, because even though uh, the, the word has come, this little girl is dead. Nonetheless, Yeshua looks at the father and he says, I'm coming anyways. Uh, so they all come to, to Jairus' house. And when they come, everyone, of course, is mourning uh, and, and crying and wailing. In that culture, there would have been professional mourners there. Uh, that would have been very, very loud. And Yeshua says, she walks in and he says, she's really just sleeping. She's only asleep. Now, by the way, this has, verse has confounded a lot of people. They say, well, maybe it was just a natural resuscitation, and maybe she wasn't really dead. Maybe this was not a supernatural resurrection. But when Yeshua, when Yeshua says she's sleeping, that's just a euphemism. She's dead. <laughs> the whole crowd knew she was dead, and that's why they laugh at him. In fact, in the parallel account in Luke 8.55 on the overhead, it says her spirit returned at once she stood up when he healed her. Now, if her spirit returned when Yeshua healed her, that means her spirit had previously left her, i.e., she was dead. Uh, the Bible commentators for 2,000 years, the gospel writers, Yeshua himself, they all understood she was dead. She's not just apparently dead uh, or partly dead or mostly dead. She's dead. <laughs> then why does Yeshua make this reference to sleep? Here's why. He goes into the room. Look at Mark 5, verse 40. After you put them all out, he took the child's mother and father and the disciples who were with him, went into the child, or where she was, took her by the hand, and says to her in Aramaic, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. Talitha is this Aramaic word for little girl, literally, but that really doesn't get across its full meaning. Because this is a pet name. This is a diminutive pet name. Uh, it's kind of a name a parent would give a little girl. Probably the best English translation would be something like, honey, honey, get up. This is Yeshua taking her by the hand, saying, honey. The second word he uses is kum, which is Aramaic for, for wake up or get up. And therefore, Yeshua is saying to her what any parent would have said on a sunny morning. This is a word for a parent who loves a child, comes in on a sunny morning, sits down, takes her by the hand and says, honey, it's time to get up. That's the sense of this phrase. Honey, it's time to get up. And she does. And this teaches us two things that almost no other story teaches us in, in the same way. Number one, look at his power in raising her from the dead. Again, as we talked about last week, there's no incantation, there's no special effort, there's no special effects. Uh, he doesn't roll up his sleeves. He doesn't say, stand back. <laughs> he doesn't call on a higher power. Yeshua is facing a greater foe than the hurricane. 
He's facing a greater foe than the legion of demons. He's facing death itself. The most implacable, inexorable enemy of the human race. Death. And such is his power that he simply holds her hand and gently lifts her up right through it. Right through death itself. Honey, get up. And she and he rises, raises her from the dead. And Yeshua says, and he's saying to you today, when I have you by the hand, even death itself is nothing but a good night's sleep. Even death itself can only ultimately make you better. If I have you by the hand, that's what my power is like. So on the overhead, that's the first thing we learn about Yeshua's power. The first thing we learn here is his power. And the second thing we learn is his love. This is the ultimate parent. You know, when you were little, if your parents held you by the hand, you felt everything was okay. Now, of course, even the best parents are imperfect. But Yeshua is the ultimate parent. He'll hold us by the hand. Uh, he'll never let you go. He'll bring you through the darkest night. And so to see the Lord of the universe, the one whose hands, the one whose hands scattered the stars like seeds, to see him take you by the hand and say, honey, it's time to get up. That shows you his infinite love and care for you. And so why would you want to hurry somebody like this? Why would you want to hurry somebody that powerful, that wise, that loving, who treats you that tenderly? Why would you want to hurry Someone like that. And you might ask, well, 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 how can he do this? How can he, he hold, it, hold me by the hand in, in spite of what I deserve, in spite of my sin, in spite of how far short I fall on the overhead? And the answer is point three, uh, the weakness of Yeshua. Look at Second Corinthians 13.4. He was crucified in weakness that we could live in God's power. That's why power went out from him when the woman with the issue of blood touched him. He became weak that we could become strong. He lost his father's hand on the cross. The father was not holding his hand. There's nothing more frightening for a little child than to lose the parent's hand in a crowd or in the dark. But there's nothing, but that's nothing compared to what Yeshua himself went through. He lost his father's hand on the cross. He died for us. He went into the tomb so that we could be raised out of it. He was crucified outside the camp and became unclean so that our uncleanliness could be dealt with. And so we could be made clean and whole. That's He lost his father's hand so that we could know that if, if he has our hand, he will never, ever, ever forsake us. Yeshua knew the only way to the crown, it's on the overhead please, the only way to the crown was through the cross. The only way to resurrection was through death. The only way to power was through weakness. And the delays of Yeshua teach us that. Yeshua's delays teach us that only through our own weakness will we develop humility and grace and wisdom. Only through the delays will these delays teach us to become the people that we ought to be. But Yeshua experiences the ultimate delay. He says, Father, there's any way we could save mankind without, is there any way without me having to go through the cross? Matthew 26, 39, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you. And the father's answer to Yeshua was no. 
There is no other way. And Yeshua agreed voluntarily to become weak and to die on your behalf and mine. He saw the the ultimate good that would come from his sacrifice. And so in the same way, we need to be conformed to his patience and endurance and long-suffering and self-control. That though we may be conformed to his image uh, and share in his resurrection. Uh, The woman with the issue of blood, she suffered 12 years. Jairus' daughter, we're told, was also 12 years old. The gospel writers took note of the seeming coincidence. The healing of the woman who bled for 12 years and the resurrection of the 12-year-old girl anticipates the restoration of the 12 tribes of Israel. The numbers here symbolize the coming of the Messianic kingdom. And Messiah ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, And the healing of the world. And the resurrection of the dead. And the restoration of all things. Are you trying to hurry Yeshua? Take him by the hand. Let him do in your life what he wants to do. He loves you. He knows what he's doing. It's time to wake up and to seek first his kingdom. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Need the music team to come on up, please. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Father, thank you for these lessons today, these practical lessons, these hard lessons, that your love and your grace are indeed compatible with what we think are your inexcusable delays. But you, Yeshua, will not be hurried. You accomplish everything on your timetable, not ours. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us through your delays. When we go to you, Yeshua, we always give and get far more than we bargain for. We have our faith stretched, but we get tremendous blessings and closeness to you in the end if we remain faithful. We thank you, Yeshua, that in the corners of your garment... Symbolizing your word. You are the word made flesh. In you we have healing. Physical, emotional, mental, spiritual. We thank you Lord for reminding us that if you seem to be unreasonably delaying. It's only because there are these crucial factors we don't know. We don't know all the facts. We don't have your eternal perspective. So help us Lord when things look confusing or frustrating to us. Help us to trust in you. Lord we today repent of our pride and arrogance and presumption to think that we know what's best for us better than you do. And thank you that in order for us to be strong, Lord, you became weak for us. To have power go out from you to affect our healing, to affect our salvation. Lord, today, Yeshua, we take you by the hand and we know that you will never, ever, ever let us go. And we pray this in your name, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.